0: Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Michael Johnston. Today I'm joined by my colleague James Kiersted to discuss the latest crisis in our university system. Now, James is, as well as being a part-time fellow here at the Initiative, an academic in the Classical Studies School, Victoria University of Wellington.
1: Yeah, prog- program in Classics.
0: Program in Classics. For now,
1: yep. Yeah. I am still there for now, yep. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Now, can we call it a classics program if they stop teaching Greek
1: and Latin? Isn't that their their objective? Well, we t- we've always taught three things, classical studies, Greek and Latin. So we had three majors, and yeah, it looks like we're not going to be allowed to continue to teach Greek and Latin, but we still have classical studies. So yeah, I think it's still, it's still a classics department. You can still learn a ton of things without Greek and Latin, but, but yeah, we feel like Greek and Latin is really intrinsic to the to the deep knowledge of the ancient world. Kind of uh, almost to the same extent that math would be to physics or or chemistry. You know, it's very foundational. So, yeah, we were a bit sad about that, but that's the way it is. But at least you're
0: not a teacher of a modern language like German or Italian. Those languages
1: will no longer be taught at Victoria. It's unclear yet. I I feared that was the case. I'm not sure if that's going to be the case, but certainly their capacity is going to be much reduced. And I would add into that also Asian studies. Yeah, two of the most amazing polyglots I know at the university, it looks like their jobs are going to be cut. And so that that's very sad. And I think that it's very strange because, of course, we're always saying, New Zealanders are always saying, and New Zealand leaders are always saying, like, we need to engage with the world. We need to engage with Asia. We need to engage with China. We need to keep up our good relationships with Europe, with these vast economies like Germany, the UK, of course, but also France. And in order to do that, in order to understand these other cultures and engage with people on an equal basis, you really need to, to know something of their language, and you know, and preferably also something of their culture and stu- study them deeply. It's not just you know you go on Duolingo and then you can sort of go toe to toe with a, a Japanese businessman, you know, in the next h- a high level meeting. You have really got to, to study these things. And I think reducing our capacities for deep knowledge of these cultures just doesn't make sense. Right. Now the broader context is. 100-odd academic jobs
0: are going, along with 150 non-academic jobs at the university, something of that order, including jobs in education. The faculty that I was part of for 10 years is going to stop training secondary school teachers. There'll still be a primary and early childhood program. And I guess whatever program we looked at, its academics could make a case why their program was especially important. But in the end, the university has a deficit of some $35 million of that order, and they have to yeah. recoup it. What's your understanding, James, of how this debt was accrued? What's What's the problem?
1: Yeah, so it's something on the order of $30 million, a $30 million budgetary hole in the case of Vic, and something like 60, or, or I've heard figures even higher than 60, sort of $66 million in the case of Otago. So there, we, we should remember to keep this in context as well. It's happening at the University of Otago as well. So my understanding from within VEC, as I've seen the Vice-Chancellor's presentation on this, which I think it's pretty sure is public, is that actually a lot of that was due to a, a very sharp decline in domestic enrollments just this year. So we can't put it all down to the hole left by the international
0: students during the border closures?
1: We can't put it all down to that. I, mean, I think that does play a role because obviously, you know, if you're losing lots of money in one place, it's always great to have some reserves. And I think that all these other things we're going to be talking about today, they didn't help these universities, they didn't help these universities financial position. But as far as the vice chancellor's presentation was concerned, he was saying a lot of it is down to a drop in domestic enrollments this year. And it seems like, the, according to his figures, the university actually weathered the storm of the COVID crisis or the COVID response, weathered the storm of closed borders reasonably well. But then there was this huge drop this year. And And my understanding from within the university is that a significant part of that was actually due to a glitch in the enrollment system. So, and I, and I sort of experienced this firsthand. I mean, a lot of my colleagues did as well, that we were trying to enroll students at the beginning of the year for honors courses especially, and students were having a heck of a time just getting enrolled. And sometimes students would try 10 or 11 times to get on the system, and it didn't work. And then, and then not surprisingly, a lot of people were just sort of saying, well, screw this, you know, and, and going elsewhere and, and not becoming a student or not enrolling for those classes. So that's it's, it's very strange. Like, it seems like quite a small thing, but it actually had quite a big effect. Now, I don't think that's the only reason, and I think that these other reasons that we're talking about are sort of more awkward to talk about, and so maybe yeah. there's more being put on that than, than it really deserves. But that was a big thing. However, I would say about that, I mean, that is a sort of classic short-term problem, right? So Absolutely. So if that happened this year, I mean, I think it was actually resolved sort of by later in the year, and I would be very surprised if it wasn't resolved next year and in the following years. And so then you have to ask, well, like, why are you permanently, uh, or not maybe not completely permanently, because they can they can hire new people or rehire people, but you know, you're you're ending people's jobs you're for the for the foreseeable future. And why do you need to do that if so much of this came from this one? It's book? an
0: awfully costly IT glitch. You'd think for thirty million dollars or a small fraction of that, they could get some IT specialists onto it pretty quickly and, and fix that up
1: yeah so that's why I'm not sure really how much of the drop was due to that but anyway that's the story I mean that's what the vice chancellor's telling us and I'm not I don't, I don't think that's a complete lie I think there's probably something to that but I, I think that there are other factors which haven't put the university in a very good position yes um, well
0: maybe we'll come back you know in a little while to some of the other reasons that domestic enrollments might be down. But before we do that, perhaps we should explore some of the other things that may be contributing to the financial situation. And as you've said, it's not just VIC. Otago is also making cuts. Massey has announced smaller cuts. Last year, in fact, AUT, the Auckland University of Technology, announced quite large cuts which were opposed by the Tertiary Education Union and deferred because of court action So the universities around the country are in trouble, so it seems unlikely that it's just an IT glitch. What are some of the other factors, do you think, are playing into the the current financial malaise of our our universities?
1: Okay, well, one of them is just the changing economy. So one thing that everyone's noticed, I think, is soaring rents. I mean, I think I saw a story today about, I think the median rent in Wellington is something like $600 now. Seems extraordinary. So both in Auckland and Wellington, huge rents, especially for sort of young people, would-be students trying to find a flat or even a room. And there were even news stories. One of my students actually was was in a news story in the Dominion Post, the then Dominion Post, about how she couldn't find a flat. And so obviously if you can't, if, you, if you're trying to move to Wellington or Auckland, but you you, you just can't afford to find a flat, or you literally can't find one, you're not going to enroll. You're probably going to go somewhere cheaper like Canterbury, right? Or Christchurch, you don't enroll in Canterbury. Well,
0: Massey and Waikato might do well out of... Yeah. High rents in Auckland and Wellington
1: and you know even though going abroad to study is expensive you know the more expensive we make it for or the more expensive it is for students to study in New Zealand cities the fewer are going to uh, fewer people are going to stay around or come here the other another thing about the economy is that there's a huge labor shortage on and this is again something which people are probably experiencing in their daily lives we Michael and I we tried to go to a restaurant on the weekend and what well, we did actually and the guy said uh, we said to him we tried to come here the uh, last week and we couldn't because you were closed, and he said, oh, yeah, that's because we have this massive labour shortage. Yes. So that means that unemployment is extremely low, and in situations where unemployment is extremely low, people are going to be less tempted to study because they can work instead.
0: Sure. So that may be another shortish-term factor that when the economy changes, more people may want to go to university again.
1: Are there any other factors at, at play here? A lot of factors, yeah. I mean, so another thing is, government funding. And yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people would say that I've heard a lot of colleagues say the national government, John Key's time didn't fund the universities enough. There was an article recently, I think in the New Zealand Herald by Stephen Joyce, obviously former national minister. And he was saying that the Labour government, he was alleging that the Labour government has funded universities in a way which has consistently failed to keep pace with inflation. And Stephen Joyce himself was saying that they found this quite surprising from Labour, because we'd expect Labour, usually the centre-left party, uh, funds uh, you know gives government funding out more generously, especially to things like education. But he says he said this is not the case. Well,
0: they spent a lot on amalgamating the politics, for example, and maybe that didn't leave too much left over for the universities.
1: It's possible. I mean, apparently, even the the amount of total funding to the universities, I think, is what Stephen Joyce was talking about, rather than to higher ed. But in any case, so it's, it's possible that that amount just hasn't been enough. I mean, we've got to remember inflation has been extremely high. You know, so the uh, university really did need to 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 raise the level of funding if it was going to keep pace with inflation, and it and it didn't. So obviously, universities are going to take a hit. So something of a perfect storm there, and all of these
0: factors that we're talking about are largely beyond the control of the universities themselves, except perhaps the IT glitch. You could argue they ought to have been a bit more onto it with that. But yep. what about other things that the university itself? could be doing differently or could have done differently to alleviate this situation before it got to this point?
1: Well I think that there have been some questionable spending decisions. I mean I think they've, they've spent things on, they, they've spent money on things that a few years ago you know might have seemed okay because times things you know were relatively good, things were going relatively well. So one example of these brand refreshes, Victoria spent something like half a million dollars on a brand refresh which centered on making the word Wellington bigger in the science. I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. like something out of a satirical novel, but you remember Grant Guilford tried to get the name changed to just the University of Wellington. That failed. It didn't have popular support in the I community. Do. Chris Hipkins actually overruled it. When he was Minister for Education. That's right. He, yeah. And then Grant Guilford decided to change all the signs to make the word Wellington bigger. That cost a half million dollars. Half a million dollars is not very much money in the with the kind of sums that we're talking about here. So I don't think that was a huge thing. However, Otago did its, own, did its own brand refresh, that has cost something like seven uh, up to seven hundred thousand dollars, or the figure I have here is six hundred and seventy thousand dollars. Again, so again a, fa- a fairly small
0: yeah. proportion of the money there. Yeah, yeah. it's not huge, but I think buy.
1: I think none of these things none of these things help. That pales in comparison to the amount spent on flashy new buildings. So th- uh, that yes. we when we move to these flashy new buildings, big. New buildings, very nice looking, probably nice labs and classrooms inside them. We moved to these. Now we're talking about serious money, you know, even at the sort of higher education funding level. So Otago spent some $150 million on a new facility on its Christchurch campus, and Victoria has spent some $100 million on a new science building, to Rasa, which I've actually taught in because there's also other lecture theaters there. So that was $100 million. It is a nice building, but it costs $100 million. And then right now they're constructing the so- so-called Living Paw. And if you, if you go down Kelburn Parade, you'll see that this building has all these signs outside saying that this building is going to do wonderful things, like mm-hmm. change our relationship with, with nature, I think, and various other things. And that, that's costing about $45 million. Big claims. And it, it, there's a sort of
0: irony here, of course, because they've got falling enrollments, and now they're laying off staff, yet they're going to have more space to accommodate fewer people. Because they've spent all this money on the buildings. The balance seems wrong there.
1: Well, no, but that's, I mean, that's okay because what they, I mean, I think that what vice chancellors in Australia and New Zealand, the strategy they they seem to be pursuing is that they have big class sizes. So they want lots of students, especially lots of foreign students, international students. And Australian and New Zealand universities have an extremely high ratio of students to staff inter- by international standards. I see. So they want big classes. They don't necessarily want to fill them with lots of professors. <laughs> they want mm-hmm. to fill them with lots
0: of students. But they're not getting the, the students, and yet they're building buildings to accommodate them. I suppose yep. if they're successful with their marketing strategies, then their enrollments will increase and they can have their yep. their big classes in the, in the future.
1: But w- we should talk a little bit also about international students because, as I say, like it doesn't seem to be the case that that was the main problem at Vic this year. However, it's another thing that probably didn't didn't help. And here it's very important to note that, again, Australia and New Zealand are quite extraordinary compared to other university systems in the world. Australia and New Zealand have by far the highest number of international students per head of population. In Salvatore Bobones' book, Australian Universities, Can They Reform? He cites UN figures, and he says that Australian universities have something like 17 international students per 1,000 head of population. Mm. In New Zealand, it's something like 11. And all the nearest competitors are like six, five, four, three, way down.
0: Places like Canada and the US. Places like Canada, the
1: UK, France, Germany. So, and that means that Australian and New Zealand universities, you know, they really went for the strategy. We want students from abroad, and usually it's Chinese students, and that meant they were extremely exposed to anything that would Mm. prevent international students from coming to New Zealand and Australia. And in normal times, we'd be talking about things like the cost of living, uh, and you know how easy it is to get a visa, and those things do matter in ordinary times. However, in recent years, there's you know extraordinary times. There there have been other things. So one example is the closure of borders. Yeah. You know, and that we might want to argue that that was necessary in that circ- in these circumstances. But the fact is, we were extremely exposed to drops in international student numbers, and we did something which is obviously going to you know make international student numbers plummet to basically zero, and that was close the borders. Yeah. And and you know. Even when things reopened, I know people here at the initiative before I got here were arguing that the government should make it easier for international students to come back in earlier, and they, they didn't. And so that was a problem, too. And I think that here, it's, it's, it, the government is, again, really the, who we're blaming rather than the university leadership. But I think that in recent times, at least a lot of people at the university, I, I don't think they were um, sufficiently aware of how much of a hit they were taking because of the decline in international enrollments. And people were quite gung-ho about the lockdowns and the, and the border closures continuing, even though it was fairly predictable that that was going to hurt the the bottom line. One exception to that, I would say, is actually Grant Guilford himself. Yes. That he, throughout the pandemic, actually uh, wrote articles here and there, basically making the case for, for um, allowing more international students back in. and And that made perfect sense, actually, from the university's financial perspective, because he was probably aware that you know, he had gone along with the strategy of trying to interna- trying to attract international students, which 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 isn't a bad thing. I mean, I think in ordinary times it was fine. It's just that if you take if you, if you go with that strategy, then you have to be aware that if you basically completely turn off the tap on international students, we're going to take a big hit. You got a big problem. Uh, you know, to be fair, I have been thinking for many
0: years that the strategy of topping up your your finances with international students was flawed in the long run because Asian universities are gaining in stature and number and sooner or later Chinese students are going to go to university in China much more than they are going to travel. The same eventually may be true of India. And while that source of students may persist for a time, sooner or later it's likely that we're going to have to find other sources of revenue now, I, again, it's hard to blame that fully on university leaders being short-sighted or, or something because they're addressing financial problems that the university has that are extrinsic to their control and trying to find revenue where they can. So one of the things that we've been talking about a bit is the what we call the identity crisis of the universities. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think that perhaps does have some relevance to the, the problems that the university is in now. It, it may not be the main contributor at this stage to the fall in domestic enrollments, And I suppose time will tell whether they recover and whether when the labour market is less tight if more people come back to university. To what extent do you think that students are starting <laughs> to wonder whether university degrees are value for money? And do universities really clearly articulate why they should be somewhere to consider going, as opposed to going to, to Pukanga to study a trade or, or some other tertiary provider to do something else?
1: Well, I think the universities nowadays have quite a clear direction. I just not, I'm not sure that's the right direction. So I think that a lot of the signalling we've been hearing from universities and the higher-ups in universities is that these institutions are really partly for sort of social change and social justice especially in New Zealand, that takes the form of sort of engaging with Maori thought and Maturanga Maori and so on and so forth. And I think those things are interesting in themselves and individual researchers may want to pursue them. But I'm not sure that we want that to be the direction for the university. I mean, one aspect of this new strategy is that to most people in New Zealand and in Australia and in other countries in the English-speaking world, it's a very left-wing agenda. It's a very progressive agenda. And again, I mean, that's, you might be progressive, so you might want to pursue that. That's fine. But it's a public institution, right? And it's also, so it's, it's a public institution. It, it depends partly on taxation, and it, it, on tax money, and it depends partly on people choosing to, to pay fees, Yeah. right? And so one of the things we know about the New Zealand, the general population in New Zealand, is that like in populations elsewhere, there's a kind of political balance. Some people are left-wing. A lot of people are right-wing. Or, you know, some people are in the center. You know, it, it's usually a, f- a fairly balanced situation with regard to the left and the right. One of the things that we know about university academics in most English speaking countries now, including in New Zealand, is that it's very skewed to the left. And so again, I'm not saying that's necessarily, they're necessarily bad people for that reason. But it, it, it's in our own interest to think about that situation and to think, well, okay, we've got to be aware that the people we're trying to sell our services to are different from us. They're more to the right than us. So what we want to do, ideally, is give the message to them that, yes, we may have our private political views. Yes, we may have our own research agendas, but we want to serve you from the center. We want to serve you even if you're a conservative farm boy or, or you're an uh, evangelical Christian from Samoa. We're, we're going to serve you equally. And, and that means that you know, we'll get, those people will cons- be more likely to consider studying with us and paying fees to us, but it also means that we won't uh, breach this sort of social contract that we have, right? Because we're basically saying to New Zealanders, also, you can come and, and, and pay tuition fees and, and study with us or have your children study study with us, but also you're paying taxes. So some of your tax money, some of the money that the government takes from you is going to us, right? And And if people perceive the university as just really... Going for one side, one set of beliefs, and being politically partisan, and sort of going against the things that they actually value, then it's not going to go well, right? People are going to be less likely to want to support uh, government funding, and and those two things, you know, uh, uh, it might have some effect on the fees, and it might have some effect on on public support uh, on support for public funding. Those two things would be a disaster for the universities together. Yes, and another way in
0: which the universities haven't necessarily served themselves well. And this connects, I think, to what you're talking about is through ultimately almost censorship of certain points of view. So we've seen speakers banned from campuses and you and I have talked about that a lot on our podcast Free Kiwis and we've talked about it in the press. So that kind of thing gets known around the country and and perhaps people who... Want to go to a more traditional university where ideas are contested freely? Might start to get, you know, perhaps an accurate picture that these universities aren't like that, and, and maybe that's not where they want to spend their money.
1: That's right. So there are these there are these instances of sort of deplatforming. So let women speak. I think was the platform from A U T. Right. That was yes. Daphne uh, Redmore. I think her name was Don Brash. Was deplatformed from Massey. From Massey and for political reasons, as we later found out. And so people reading newspapers or watching TV or listening to the radio, they hear about these things, as you say, and they probably are thinking, well, I don't know if I want my tax money to go to 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 this. I don't know if I want to pay for my son or daughter to to go to these institutions. But it's actually bigger than that, too. And it's bigger than that, and we can tell it's bigger than that because we've done these surveys, you know. So you and I were part of a survey that Heterodox New Zealand, a group of academics did, where we basically asked undergraduate students, Uh, how they felt about discussing certain controversial topics in the classroom. And the answer we got was that a significant number of them felt that they were very hindered, that they felt that they wouldn't be comfortable talking about various things, sexuality and Politics. politics and religion and, yeah, sexual orientation and things like that. And the Free Speech Union did a similar survey of academics and it found something very similar that very a lot of academics fe- fe- feel hindered so the reason i say it's bigger is because it's not just the anecdotes it's also that all of these people are experiencing these things in the universities yeah and so they're going to go out into the society or they're probably already talking to people and saying look i just think it's a really bad situation like we know they think that and so th- and we're talking about in some cases it's up to half of the people s- surveyed yeah. so like half of academics that we that were surveyed by the free speech union last year said that they felt more unfree than free to discuss the Treaty of Waitangi.
0: It's hard to see that as being a, a traditional university environment where the contest of ideas yeah. is, the, is the lifeblood. Yeah. And in fact, I think that one of the biggest issues that people felt uncomfortable about in both the Free Speech Union survey and the heterodox one was issues surrounding the Treaty of Waitangi. Now, given that the importance of those debates to public life in New Zealand at the moment, given the political focus on things like co-governance and whether or not the treaty has abstract principles that we should be signing up to and whether it's a partnership and these kinds of vital questions for our constitutional and political future, universities ought to be absolutely ground zero for discussing those issues. And yet that of all the issues, as I recall, was the one that people felt least comfortable to discuss.
1: That's right. So I think that you know, the, there was this whole debacle around the, the letter, a letter to a listeners co-authored by seven scientists or seven right. academics at Auckland. And then there was a huge hullabaloo against that. Various people and institutions, including the TEU, basically insinuated that they were being racist. Now, that wasn't
0: or, specifically to do with the treaty. That was
1: about the
0: science curriculum. And, uh, that's true. Yeah. But, but it,
1: it's a related issue. Yeah, Yeah. But the point I was going to make is just that the vice chancellor of Auckland said at the time okay, we're going to have, we're going to organize a conference. And I think it's been two years and we're still waiting to see this conference. I think she said, we're going to organize a conference next year. And, and this is what I would think is just normal. I mean, to me growing, growing up, this is what universities did. When I was at university in the early 2000s, the early '90s, this was a, a feature of universities that you could go to places. Well, in my case, it was like the Oxford Union, which was a formal sort of debating society. And you would have people talk about the controversial issues of the day. And in some ways it was kind of like the more controversial the better because hmm. o- often there's controversy because people are interested in these issues, right? They, they feel passionately about them on either side. And, and so the thing to do with that isn't to say, oh, crap, people feel passionate. Let's shut down debate. It's like, no, no, let's actually try and discuss these things in a civilized, fact-based manner and have people on, on, on both sides free to speak and, and have their say. And all of, these, all of these issues that you're talking about, including co-governance and the Treaty of Waitangi and Maturanga Maori in science, these are, you know, preeminently things which we should be able to discuss. And one I would add is the trans issue. And that's that's another classic example where if we were able to discuss it, actually, it might actually bring the temperature down. And I think that there might be lots of reasonable accommodations that people could see around this issue, where most people that we've talked to, I think, want trans people to have rights and those rights to be respected. But they also recognize that other people in society, such as women, have various claims. You know, there's a whole debate about changing rooms and things like that. And, yeah, again, you know, universities, as you say, they should be the place where this is happening. And instead, what we've seen is, you know, uh, people who are trying to have this debate be deplatformed. And even worse, you know, at, at VIC, presently, there are these huge screens and there are posters around the university which say things like there's no room for x and usually it's no room for racism no room for and and in ordinary times if they had a reasonable definition of these things you think oh that's fine no one's i'm not in favor of racism of course but it does seem to be hinting to to a lot of my colleagues that i've talked to it seems to be really hinting that you have to toe the line on these on these issues or you You have to toe the line on gender on gender ideology or whatever you know whatever you want to call that view otherwise you might be in trouble and that's a huge problem yeah so, if we were to give some
0: advice to the vice chancellors, because you know we, we've been around universities for a while, so we've probably got a, a, a right to do that, what would it be? I, I mean, we probably don't want to suggest that all of the woes of the university would be cured by reverting to a more traditional view of the exchange of ideas on campuses, but perhaps that's one thing that we could suggest to them that actually they differentiate themselves from other tertiary providers by really emphasizing themselves as venues for the for a place where ideas are contested freely
1: i think that the logic of that is kind of unimpeachable as i say as we know you know most people are actually to the right of, of the current uh, staff and they usually uh, academic staff and they usually have more sort of mainstream ideas about things like gender and who knows maybe our academic colleagues are right about those things but at least you've got a be open enough to let people in and not give them the sense that they might get in a lot of trouble, either academic colleagues or students, if they have another view, right? So I think that kind of thing would help immensely. And it wouldn't, wouldn't just help, you know, the farm boys from Taranaki and, and, and the sort of evangelical Christians from Samoa feel more comfortable coming to universities here. It would also help people from other parts of the world keep on perceiving New Zealand as a place of academic freedom, Yeah. right? So you and I are both big fans of Karl Popper. He came here after he was persecuted by the Nazis or you know, he risked persecution from the Nazis. A lot of the reason that people from China come here, I think it, you know, partly it's to get an English-speaking education and sort of move up the pecking order in that way like a lot of people want to do with their lives. But um, it's also that this is a free country. And I think if we could be a beacon for that, even in the English-speaking world where academic freedom is really struggling, if we could return to being a beacon for that, that would help hugely. Indeed. Now,
0: there is another issue that distinguishes New Zealand universities, which is that we have one of the highest ratios of administrative staff to academics in the world. And and perhaps this is something else that they need to look at through a bit of a financial lens. If we consider that the core business of universities is education and research, and both of those functions are carried out by academics, then having... A much higher ratio of, of administrators to academics doesn't seem like a good financial approach. So, what do you, what do you know about that? You've got a
1: forthcoming report about this, I believe. Yes, yes, co-authored co with Michael Johnson. Oh, I should <laughs> know. I should know about it, then, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, um, we were we were disturbed, I think, recently to hear from an academic colleague that he had gone up to the vice chancellor after a presentation and had said, "What is your?" you or what are your figures to do with the number of non-academics and academics at New Zealand universities. He, like every good person should, had been listening to the New Zealand Initiative podcast, you see. Ah, And in a previous iteration with Oliver Hartwich, I was saying to him what the figures were for non-academics and academics in New Zealand. The basic point is that in New Zealand universities, there are more non-academics and professional or general staff than there are academics. So to a lot of people, this might seem counterintuitive because you might be out there thinking, oh, you know, universities are places of learning, so they should have you know, a lot of students, a certain number of academics, and you know, maybe people who help around the edges, and maybe that help is very valuable and important, but there'll be fewer of those people, right? No, at, th- at this point in time, there are, f- there are more, and in some cases, there are significantly more. So in the last few years, the University of Otago, for example, has had something between 1.5 and 1.6 non-academics for every academic that they have. In other words, they have 50 to 60% more professional or general staff than they have academics. And that's a common situation. So Otago isn't alone in this. I mean, it's especially it has an especially high ratio. But if you look at the graph in our policy point, you'll see that since 2013, so for the past 10 years, all the universities in that graph, and we have there six out of eight of the New Zealand universities, they've actually employed more non-academics than academics.
0: So that might be something them to think about in the longer term, and and actually, you know, Victoria is cutting more administrative positions than academic ones, but that won't significantly shift the ratio.
1: No, and I mean, I think it's gotten to the extent that even if you if you filled all the redundancies at Vic, if they want to cut two hundred fifty people, if they if they filled all those redundancies just by dealing with professional staff. Vic would still have, a, and New Zealand universities would still have a higher ratio of professional to academic staff than in most other countries, you know, including the US and the UK and, and places like that. So it's really gotten to quite an interesting, you know, extent. It's, it's really gone quite far at this point. Now, of course, we're not arguing that they should they should sack 250 professional staff. I mean, this is, these are very serious, very tough decisions to take, and they have to look at a whole range of options. But, you know, that's where we are in terms of the numbers is that even if there was a huge course correction, we would still have some of the highest rates of, of administrative staff in universities in the world.
0: Well, that's a very interesting point and a good note to end on in light of the fact that you have co-authored with me a, a full report on this issue coming out in a few weeks' time.
1: Yeah, and it, it, another thing I, maybe we should get in is just that... It's hard to tell exactly when this growth occurred in New Zealand, the, the growth of administrative staff. In New Zealand, it seems to have taken place in the noughties, so the, the first decade of the century. And in the last 10 years or so, in New Zealand universities as a whole, there hasn't been a huge increase in administrative staff. At least, there hasn't been an well, increase to which academics. is yeah, exactly, yeah. above and beyond the, the growth in academics. However, in the two universities that are most struggling at the moment and having cuts, Otago and Victoria, there has been a big Growth in administrative staff quite recently. So, uh, and this is above and beyond the growth in academic staff. So, since 2009, academic staff numbers at Otago and Victoria have grown by only 3% and 9%, respectively. During the same period, professional staff numbers increased at Otago by 18% and at Victoria by 31%. Wow. So, that, that's a big growth. And I think that you know people could argue, oh, we really we need administrative staff. They're very helpful. And I would agree. But then you have to justify why our figures are so much higher than in other countries.
0: Again, something for the Vice-Chancellors to be considering, and thank you very much for joining me today, and we'll look forward to the release of that report in due course.
1: Thanks, Michael.